Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is sponsored uh, by Rafi and Ruti Fuzailov in memory of Yitzchak HaKohen Ben Rachel Alava um, Shalom, who unfortunately passed away this Shabbat. Ruach Adonai Tenichenu Began Eden. After the class is over, we'll do Be'ezat uh, Hashem, we'll do a, hash, a full Hashkava. The Pasuk tells us, Katonti Mikol Hasadim Mikol Emet. Yaakov Avinu is now returning to the land of Israel. He's returning back to his ancestral homeland and going back to where he grew up with, back to his father. And interestingly enough, on the route on the way back, he's now coming face to face with his brother Esav. And he knows that there's danger that lies ahead of him in the form of Esav and 400 soldiers he knows that this danger is present and it is clear. But as we explained last week, Yaakov Avinu is more worried about Lavan and living with Lavan than he is about dealing with the fate that, waits, that awaits him at the hands of Esav. Rabotai, I need you to hear this as well. His, the way he sees Esav is so dangerous that even half of his people, half of his family might get wiped out. And yet, Yaakov chooses to run towards Esav and away from Lavan. Can you hear that? It shows you how devastating the appearance, the connection, the uh, influence of a person's surroundings and their environment can be that Yaakov was willing and preferred to face Esav where he's going to split his camp in half. He prefers that than staying in the house of Lavan. And our rabbis point out that if you take a look, Rashi says that Yaakov sends Esav a message. Im Lavan Garti, I lived with Lavan. Rashi says on these words, in Lavan Garti, the word Garti is the same letters as the words Taryag. Im Lavan Garti, Vitaryag Mitzvot Shamarti. I lived with Lavan and I kept all 613 mitzvot. And I did not learn from his evil ways. Ask all the Sefarim, one second. You just told me that you kept all the 613 mitzvot. You don't then need to tell me that you didn't learn his evil ways. You're keeping everything, obviously. And the lesson here is so profound that you could be keeping 613 mitzvot and still have been influenced in a terrible way. You could be keeping every mitzvah in the Torah with every hidur and with every chumrah and be rotten to the core. How are you doing those mitzvot? Are you doing them begrudgingly? How are you doing those mitzvot? Are you doing them with arrogance? What did he pick up from Lavan? What uh, Yaakov Avinu had to say to Esav is, I'm keeping everything, and not only that, most importantly, I kept myself. I didn't become another Lavan. I didn't learn from Ma'asav Haraim. One of the most important things a person needs to be careful about in this world is to keep their eyes open to the people that they surround themselves with. Everybody has weak days. And on your weak days, the, the greatest strength you have in your arsenal is the friends and community you keep. 
Im Lavan Garti, says Yaakov, I kept the Tariag Mitzvot. I did everything. But I still need to tell you, I did not learn his evil ways. Yaakov is clearly, while saying that, still intimating that he needed to run away. Maybe the idea is that Yaakov Avinu was confident in himself that he was capable of maintaining his position, even with naysayers in his ear. You know, even with people talking to him in the back about how his Judaism is ridiculous, and why does he believe in this, and why does he believe in that, and does it really make a difference to God if he eats at this kosher restaurant or not, and why is he bothering the tefillah, just stay here with us a little bit longer. You know, you prayed already this morning, you didn't mean high yesterday, calm down, don't be so religious. He didn't, Yaakov was capable of being Teflon, of being titanium to those bullets, okay? But maybe Yaakov was worried about his children. Maybe Yaakov was worried, would his kids turn out the same way? Sitting there with their grandpa uh, all the time. Would that happen to the same degree? Is this clear? At that stage, we see that Yaakov makes a bold move. He knows that if he can't protect his children, his children are as good as dead Jewishly anyway. So you know what? I'd rather face Esav than face Lavan. You know, this unfortunately is a big, big, big question that people need to ask themselves. It shows its head in many different scenarios. This question shows its head in education. You have a child that's in a school where they'll have their Jewish values. They'll be kept. Their Jewish values will be kept. They'll stay Jewish. They'll learn about the Torah. Or you could send the kid to another school where they'll succeed more in other subjects but they'll have no Jewish background. All their friends will be, uh, they'll come from a different place. And you're worried perhaps that the kid, it's not every time that you're worried that the kid is going to fall off the rails if he's in a non-Jewish school or if he's, a, if he's in a much less religious school. But you're choosing, you're choosing to put him in a school that you think might be better on one side for him, but not taking into account the fact that his Jewish identity, his Jewish knowledge, his Jewish relationship will suffer. My friends, you see from Yaakov that a person needs to be willing to have all sorts of other elements kind of fall at the feet of the choice to make sure that the kids turn out the right way. This is so important. Now, again, I, I, I want to exhibit what this means. And we were hearing my friends and I, my, Rabbi Abragamov, Rabbi Hadjov, we heard something remarkable yesterday uh, from Rabbi Rosen. We were talking about uh, a synagogue in London. And the synagogue in London was uh, considering selling the cemetery that, was, that belonged to the synagogue. Now in order to do so, one of the things they needed to do was they needed to clear, move the bodies that were there. It was a very old cemetery. And they asked the questions in halakha. They spoke to the chief rabbi in Israel. They told him exactly what to do, how to do it, how's a respectful way, etc., etc. But the law in England required them, it required them to check and get permission from the descendants of the people that were buried there. You imagine there's 300 people, 300 some odd people that are buried there. I think it was 360 people that are buried there. How many people, how many descendants are they going to have, you know, 200 years later? Now they have to contact all of them, or at least the executors of their family's wills. Wild. They start contacting all of the families. 
one after the next. Rabotai. And you know what happened? And you know what they discovered? That not one, not one of those descendants was Jewish. Everybody thinks they're bulletproof. Everybody thinks their kids are safe. And this is not just about intermarriage. That's the furthest part of this. Everybody thinks their kids are going to have the Jewish house that they hope they'll have. Everyone thinks that their grandkids will have a seder. Everyone thinks that their grandkids will keep Shabbat, at least to whatever degree they're comfortable with. Everyone thinks that their kids are going to go like I did. We all went to Kines when we were younger. Rabbi, I don't understand. How come it's what's going on here? Why are my grandkids not going? We, we never missed. I remember once we were running a kid's minyan in a synagogue in London. And a man came up to me and he said, Rabbi, what kind of thing is this? Why are you doing a kid's minyan downstairs? When I was young, I sat next to my father for the beginning of tefillah to the end of tefillah. I didn't move. You're separating the kid from, I want my son to pray with me. Why are you making a kid's minyan downstairs, a teen minyan? You're taking my son downstairs. You're taking my son away from me. Most rabbis would say, oh, mechila, I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, I knew better than most rabbis. You know why? Not because I'm smarter, because my job was to work with teenagers. So I knew the right follow-up question to ask this father to get him off my back. The right follow-up question was, and is your son coming to sit with you in shul? No, rabbi, my son never comes to shul. I was like, so leave me the heck alone. Do you understand that? Rabbi, you're taking my son away from sitting next to me in shul. Your son doesn't come to shul. I know his son. You understand? I'm bringing his son to shul in the teen minyan. His son was not coming. So what's he complaining about? Is this man crazy? He's not crazy. Sometimes we live with unrealistic expectations. We live in a fantasy world. We think that this is going to happen... And it doesn't happen. And you know what? Rather than face the reality and say, my fantasy is a fantasy, you know what I say? Rabbi, why are you taking my kid away from sitting next to me? Your kid doesn't sit next to you. He hasn't since he was six years old. When someone came and gave him lollipops and shul. Are we clear? Yaakov Avinu understands. I don't care if my kids are the shiftei yah. If they are the holy tribes of Israel, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, each one of them a bigger tzaddik than the next. I don't care who they are. In the house of Lavan, what's going to become of them? What's going to become of them? I need to move. There's tremendous risk in moving. I might meet Esav and there might be terrible consequences. I'm willing to face those consequences. Because you know what the alternative might be? The alternative might be that of all of these people, not one of their descendants is Jewish. Atamevin, is, is this clear? Yaakov is bulletproof. But he understands that his kids might not be. Maybe his wives might not be. I ask you that question as well. There's always ramifications. I had someone who uh, I met, I bumped into them, and they asked me if I have any programs in the schools in Brooklyn. I said, no, we're primarily working in, the, in Manhattan. 
Um, I could try and find out what's going on in Brooklyn. I said, what's it, what, what do you mean? She says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm new to this. What do you mean you're new to this? She says, I had a bunch of kids. I sent all my kids to non-Jewish schools. And the reason why I did that was because I knew what the schools were like over here. And I felt that I could get a better result for my kids in these other schools. So that's why I sent them in, in non-Jewish schools. She says, but unfortunately, I started seeing who my oldest kids are dating now that my youngest kid was starting high school. I started seeing the way they speak at the Shabbat table. I started seeing their politics and their worldview and how they relate to Israel. And I said to myself, what am I, nuts? I sent them there for a career, that was the reason, so they would have better academics. Plenty of people in the community didn't have the best academics and they still have a great job. And plenty of people in the community who have the best academics still don't have the greatest job. What is irreplaceable is that feeling that they have, the knowledge that they have, the societal connection that they have, the community ties that they have when they grow up as part of something. They grow up as part of the right thing. And you know what? And I must say this to every parent of kids in Jewish schools. Even if your kid in your Jewish school is not necessarily picking up on everything that they're serving, it's still penetrating. And in the right time and in the right way, it will come home to roost. I remember back, we used to sing all the Hanukkah songs. I still remember once going to a, a school in England for a special program for Hanukkah. I said, how many Jewish kids are there? 300 Jewish kids. Fantastic. What do I bring to my Hanukkah speech uh, with, for 300 Jewish kids in a, in, a, in a non-Jewish Catholic school? Of course, I bring 300 donuts. No one wants to share a donut. I bring the donuts in like a conquering hero, right? Like these pallets of donuts. I bring them in. I give the speech. How many kids are there? 150 kids. I said, where are the rest of the Jewish kids? They said, oh, they gave us a choice if they, we should come here to the Hanukkah program or go to the chapel to sing Christmas songs. So 150 on in here singing Mao's Tzur and 150 there are singing O Silent Night. She bifledge. The kids are not bulletproof. They need to be protected. They need to be guided. And in a world which is literally lobbing projectiles at them all the time, you got to be careful. And you know what? You think your kid's a good kid? Yaakov says, you could be keeping everything and still be influenced. That's why he, Rashi says, I kept all the mitzvot. And you know what else? And I did not learn from his ways. Because those are separate things. May Hashem bless us always to be able to pay attention to the needs of our kids. And Rabbi also to pay attention to the needs of ourselves, of our wives, of our families, of our community. What are we doing to ensure that we protect our misorah? To ensure that things, outside winds don't penetrate. What are we doing? How are we making sure that these things happen? And the programs that are run, and the informal events that we do, and the Purim party that we run, that we do for young professionals, and the events that we run in Chazak, all of these things, Rabotai, these are the stuff of a Jewish future. Come on, let's go. We gotta do. 
We have an insatiable appetite. Myself, Rabbi Ruvain, Rabbi Ariel, uh, Rabbi uh, Lawrence, you know, and the other rabbis that I know in many places, and many rabbis of many communities, to do things for the community, to do things. And there's people amongst the community that also are pushing for this all the time. Amongst them, we have one here today, Rafi. Rafi, unbelievable. What he does for everyone in the Kehila. What he pushes with his kids. Amazing. One of his daughters reached out to me a while ago about a problem, an issue someone of her friends was having. Rabbi, you need to get involved. You need to help. They're aware. They're cognizant. And we have another Rafi here also who pushes and pushes and pushes until our program for the kids. It finally happened. If not for Rafi, I could say, hand on my heart, we probably would not have had a kids' minyan yesterday. And it is appropriate that in the first kids' minyan that was pushed for incessantly by this Rafi also, who won the tickets? His kid won the tickets. <laughs> right? Shy, where's Shy? Ah, Shy doesn't stop pushing for a blood drive until the blood drive happens and fills out. We talked about doing the shot nares. Shy got on my case. I have a million things on my head. Shy sitting there. He wasn't shy. So, ah, Keep pushing. And you know what? Today, outside the bed, said, there's a mobile shot in the station. Why? Because Shy don't leave me alone. Fantastic. <laughs> Harry Towel. We have a Gemara class. Who's the chut? Harry Towel sat on me afterwards. When we were doing, I came to him with this idea I want to do. We got to get some guys. Harry and Ray Chira pushing, asking guys to get involved. Come on. Jack Zolta, I'm calling you out. You're not here today. Wants to run a program for the parents, uh, for a group of the couples. Ray Chira, on my case, to give a class for the parents of Sam. Mara Ati, making sure that we have a program for the bat mitzvah kids. It has to come not just from us. It has to come from you. It has to come from you. Rabbi Mizrahi last night gave a class after Arbit. Where did that come from? Combo. That was a Rafi Murray combo. Murray pushing all the time for after Shabbat to do Viten Lecha, to do Chok class, to do an extra class. Right? That's what happened. Out of that was born a new thing. These, this is how it works. You know, it's a very special thing. Gary Feldman on Rabbi Mizrahi's case until he started a Ben Ishchai class. You understand? This is how these things work. Rabbi can come up with an idea. He can plant the seed, but until that seed sprouts in someone, until we have partners, until people are willing to get behind, rally the troops, ask other people, what happens? Rahet. It, it dissipates. It disappears. I made a comment how many years ago in a class how many years ago we talked about the idea of simahot.com that a person can gather the money that you need for all the needs of the community in small ways. Instead of asking the same people again and again and again and again for large donations, you ask a lot of people for a small donation and they charge you every, however, every month, maximum they could charge you is X and only if they need it. And then you have guys that can't afford to help put on a wedding, but they could afford $100 a month. And then that pools into something very big, and the people who need it the most get what they need, and the biggest people in the community don't stop giving tzedakah because they're hajjed. 
in Mexico, the idea was brought in front of the Kehillah heads because it's crazy. Abraham, right? Abraham says, Hineni. Right? What does Abraham mean when he says, Hineni? Hashem gives him a command, and what happens? He says, I'm ready. I'm taking it. I'm running with it. I didn't ask. I didn't ask the person. I didn't ask it to be done. But you did it anyway. Ashrecha. So many examples of this concept of a recognition that we have to be able to create infrastructure, I take ideas, launch them off the ground. You know, Netflix doesn't stop putting out TV shows. Okay? Or oh, the movies, they don't stop putting out superhero movies. You know? The agenda of political parties, it doesn't end. They're running that grill. Okay? On and on and on. Every agenda that they have. The agenda of secular, of secular atheism today, or atheism. It just doesn't stop. We need to be as restless, as relentless at pushing back as they are. I keep all the mitzvot, that's not enough. What are you doing to protect the environment? And by that, I don't mean COP26. I mean, what are you doing to protect the Jewish environment? Because more pollutive than coal is the pollution of greed, is the pollution of, mor of uh, moral bankruptcy that we are living in today, of a completely self-absorbed culture. What are you doing to protect yourself and your kids? If your kids are on social media, are you aware what they're consuming 24-7? How are you fighting back? Are you taking it away? If you can't take it away, what are you implementing to counterbalance that complete obsession with self that they learn on, uh, on Instagram and on whatever else? These are decisions that every father, every mother, every community member needs to have uh, in building a beautiful society within which we can maintain uh, the mitzvot, the mindset uh, that we have tried to be able to stay faithful to for nearly 3,300 years. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.